This podcast is produced and issued by Morningstar Investment Management, LLC, a registered investment advisor and subsidiary of Morningstar, Inc. The content is intended for U.S. audiences only. Individuals featured in this podcast are employed by Morningstar, Inc. and its subsidiaries. This includes, but is not limited to, Morningstar Investment Management, LLC and Morningstar Research Services, LLC. Morningstar Investment Management and Morningstar Research Services are registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Stay tuned for additional important disclosure information at the end of this episode. Today, we're talking about risk. And certainly, if you've read or listened to the news lately, you'll be aware of quite a few risks out there. Thinking about markets, 2020 began with a lot of optimism after the S&P 500 gained over 30% in 2019. But that optimism was short-lived. The entire world was flipped on its head, in fact, with the spread of COVID-19 in early 2020. Markets fell as the virus and lockdown spread, followed by the OPEC-Russia oil dispute, which added to the turmoil. In the first quarter of 2020, the S&P 500 fell just shy of 20% and and more than 30% peaked a trough. However, a strong recovery after that saw the market soar to record highs before retreating again more recently. Meanwhile, the economy continues to struggle. Unemployment remains stubbornly high, and efforts to reopen the economy have been a tale of fits and starts, with surges of new COVID cases in many parts of the U.S. and around the world. We've also seen civil unrest from coast to coast in the U.S., and to top it all off, we have one of the most contentious elections in history in about a month. Given these risks, how can advisors help clients succeed? This is Simple But Not Easy, a podcast about investing and behavioral science by Morningstar Investment Management. I'm Drew Carter. Joining me today are Ryan Murphy, our head of Decision Sciences, and Martin Norton, our CIO for the Americas. Ryan, I want to turn to you first. These recent events can make anyone stressed about the future, of course, but how should investors think about these risks? Or, or better yet, which risks truly matter to an investor in 2020? And how might advisors help their clients succeed? So part of what I do is, is part of a research group where we study how people make decisions, especially about risk and money. Many of the models we start with in finance and economics postulate that decision makers are perfectly rational, that they are they make trade-offs, they think about the future in these ways, and markets, of course, function this way because all of the agents therein are trying to maximize their expected utility. Now, for those of us who had some experience in interaction with people around us, we know that this isn't true. People are not always perfectly rational. And so that's where we start to come in with more of our research and understand more of the psychology of how people think about risk and make choices. And so that's the the body of research that's come out of this from behavioral and decision sciences in the last decades has shown that, you know, surprise people are not always perfectly rational. But one of the bigger and more useful insights is that there's a structure to the kinds of mistakes and foibles we have. And this is useful. It's useful from a scientific standpoint to understand the structure of mistakes people make, but also as a jumping off point to think about how we can make people make better choices. Now, we don't have a magic wand to just wave and make people perfectly rational, but we do have some techniques and insights that can help us think better about risk and in doing so help people make better decisions as investors. So what I want to do is start to tell a little bit of a story here, and I'm going to use some pictures to do so. So in the next slide, you'll see what is a sequence of returns. So on the x-axis here is time. This is five years. Uh, You can imagine here this is a market cycle. There's both ups and downs. And I've labeled these. So on the next slide, you'll see that we have here a very clear bull market. That's when there's lots of positive returns going on. 
and there's a bear market when the returns tend to be negative. The zero line there, that's if there's a wash, that there's not a positive or negative return, and that happens, of course, occasionally. So on the next slide, what I want to do is start to highlight, let's imagine two different kinds of funds that are operating over this market cycle. There's this blue fund and this red fund. The blue fund has higher highs and lower lows. The red fund follows exactly the same market cycle. This correlation between these two is, is very high, uh, but it's a little bit more muted. The red fund is dampened. It doesn't quite have as high of highs, and the lows are not quite as low. But notice how I've constructed these things. They have exactly the same starting point and ending point, and the average returns for these two funds up over this period of time is the same. All right? So now let's dig into this a little bit further. So let's imagine we have an investor and we're looking at just the market cycle here where there's up markets, where there's positive returns. And let's focus in on one particular time period on the next slide. Imagine this investor, she finds herself here and she's looking at how the market is doing. How do you think she would feel about her current investments given where the market is and other things going on in the market? Well, you'll notice the next slide shows that there's a gap. There's a gap between what her current performance is relative to another fund. And so this investor might be looking at this other fund and kicking herself saying, well, I wish I would have invested in that. And maybe she might follow some sort of return chasing and start to try and change out of the red fund into the blue. That, of course, wouldn't be a very good strategy. All right. But you can see that there's this gap and the person who's investing in red may feel like they're missing out. All right. So let's move ahead. So back to the whole market cycle here. And now let's start to look at the flip side. So this is now the down market. This is where the bear market is going on. And let's imagine again our investor who's invested in red, and she's starting to look about and see how she's doing. So if you see, you'll notice that there's a gap here between where she is and where cash is. And so if she's using cash as a reference, she's underperforming cash and because of losses. And she might be inclined to say, well, I want to step out of this. I'd like to get out. And so on the next slide, there's this gap that's highlighted again. And so again, if this person is using this particular frame of reference, they see they're underperforming relative to cash, all right? So let's go back to the whole picture here. Notice what's happened here with this person as they're evaluating how they're doing in these different market cycles. They're using shifting reference points. So in the market that is doing well, where there are lots of positive returns, they're using other funds that have to be outperforming as a reference point, and that can lead to some sort of disappointment. Yet in bear markets, they're using cash, right? So if a person were to follow their inclinations, their feelings that come from these sorts of gaps, it might induce them to start to chase returns. And we know that's really bad behavior. So there's this great uh, comment, this great drawing that comes on the next slide you'll see. Uh, I have it here from Carl Richards. He has these great drawings, uh, and this is from the cover of his book called The Behavior Gap, which is out in 2012, talking about these different market cycles and the emotions that go along with that. So as markets are going up, people tend to be very... Uh, happy, excited, greed, and buy, these sorts of things. When markets are going down, they tend to be fearful and sell. And his point is, well, yeah, follow that pattern and repeat until broke. And you can see how that manifests itself. And this echoes some of the best research we have in the behavioral in the domain of behavioral finance. One of the seminal works in this is by Terry O'Dean and his colleagues, looking at people who trade more often and their relative to performance to those who trade less often and find very clearly that people who stay the course have better long-term returns than those who try and chase short-term returns. So back to our plot here on the next slide. Let's imagine a particular investor here starts with $10,000 and can invest in either the red or the blue. Which one should they prefer, right? So I've gone through a little bit of the psychology about how they would evaluate this in different time slices. 
But what I want to do here is jump into a pop quiz. I used to be a university professor, so some habits die hard. Let's go ahead and do this. Don't worry, it's only one question. It's not going to be graded. No one's going to get embarrassed. But do your best and remember your performance here does reflect, to some extent, your value as a person. All right, so you start a portfolio that has $10,000. And in the first month you hold it, it goes up 20%. The following month, it goes down 20%. So how much is this portfolio worth after these two months? Okay, at this point, you should be saying your answer. All right, next slide. Now, there's an answer that immediately and intuitively comes to mind. Well, it's a wash, up 20, down 20. So this comes back to exactly the same starting point. And this answer is precise and exactly wrong. The correct answer is 9,600. And part of this, the reason to show this particular example is how easy it is to get tripped up by compounding. And so compounding can be non-intuitive and sometimes very counterintuitive to how we think about how return sequences work. So back to our example. So I, we have these two different funds, the red and the blue. If you started with 10,000K in each of them, how well would you do? Which one would you want to invest in? Well, it turns out in the next slide, you can see that investing in the red leads to, a, at the end, the returns sequence to 17,750 approximately, whereas the blue fund comes in at 16,150. It underperforms. And part of that is just how compounding works. And that, I think, is counterintuitive to many people, and it's worth highlighting. So on the next slide, if you start to think about how to evaluate investments and you narrow slice them, you're looking at month-by-month -month performance and you use shifting reference points, you're bound to be disappointed. And it's bound to focus attention in places where it actually doesn't matter. What I think is much more important is the holistic, is this overarching approach to thinking about investing across all these different cycles and investing with a long-term viewpoint. And in doing so, then we can start to see the value of having an investing approach that performs well in the long run. And that's really what we're trying to deliver. So again, the short-term goal of trying to beat the market or beat whatever is out there in terms of performance is probably not the long-term goal most investors should have. Really, they should be thinking about their long-term objectives as investors, which are 20 to 30-year things, and make sure that they have an investment strategy that aligns with that and helps them get where they want to go. And that's what investor success is all about. So the main takeaways I want to leave you with here from this section is talking about the psychology of framing. And framing is this intuitive way in which we answer the question for ourselves, how is something doing compared to what? And oftentimes this is an automatic process. But once you become aware of the power of framing and how that can change how we see the world, you can start to use this to be aware of when you're using a particular frame and maybe use other frames. Short-term versus long-term is one of the most powerful ones we can bring to bear that helps people make more rational decisions. This has a big impact on how we evaluate things and the kinds of choices we make subsequently. I was trying to show here with this example, with this story, how narrow frames of reference can lead to bad investment choices. This can be the sort of fuel for return chasing that we see some investors fall prey to and undermines their long-term performance. And I think it's worth reminding investors of their overarching investment goals. And in doing so can help, help them avoid the cognitive biases I've been talking about a little bit here and avoid the pitfalls that sometimes ensnare investors as they're investing. Thanks, Ryan. That's great. And now I want to turn to Marta. Marta, Ryan has talked about staying focused on long-term goals. How do you manage portfolios with investors' long-term goals in mind? 
that topic is just so critical always, but especially in an economic environment where we've had tremendous volatility in the markets, a short period of loss, followed by a longer period of gains, and we see all sorts of economic and political uncertainty. Um, And so I think a lot of investors very rightly wonder, what do I do in this market environment? How do I navigate this market environment? And what should I think about when I think about my financial portfolios? So For my part of today's conversation, I'm going to talk explicitly about risk and some of our portfolios um, that I think dovetail really nicely. So first, let's take a look at this next slide and let's talk about what risk is. And this is a concept that I think we all understand intuitively when it comes to our day-to-day lives. But as soon as we start to think about our investment portfolios, we begin to get a bit confused. And that's true for financial professionals as well. Risk is a really hard concept to quantify. And so as a shortcut, a lot of investment professionals define risk in a quantitative term, um, standard deviation, which measures volatility. So the more wildly an investment swings about, the bigger gains, the bigger losses, the greater risk it has um, relative to something that's a bit more smooth. And actually, a lot of investors behave as though risk is relative returns. So the idea that Ryan illuminated, where if you're underperforming something else, then the greatest concern that you have is that underperformance. And you have to find a way to to make up the gap or to switch investments. But is that really what risk is? And I think it's important that we return to this fundamental concept of what we're doing when we're investing. When we're investing, we're doing so because we have really tangible goals in mind. We want to send someone to college. We want to pay for a wedding. We want to buy a house. And those financial goals need investment objectives to drive them and to achieve them. Um, So when we're actually investing, the greatest risk that we have is a failure to meet our investment objectives because that means we can't do that tangible thing that we so desperately want to do. So at Morningstar Investment Management, we sat down um, in 2016 and we thought about this concept of what we're actually doing when we invest in portfolios. What are we trying to achieve? And if you take a look at the next slide, you can get a sense for kind of our way or our solution to get back to the basics and to remember why we're actually investing. Um, We launched a series of portfolios called our outcome-based portfolios. And uh, among those portfolios are our real return portfolios, which are our capital appreciation portfolios. But instead of focusing on delivering to investors a certain market exposure, a certain amount in bonds, and a certain amount in stocks, we instead thought about what are the most typical financial objectives, investment objectives that investors tend to have that can help them achieve a myriad of of financial goals. And we created four different portfolios that have a range in time horizons from three years up to 10 years with a range of different return profiles. So for the more near-term Um, portfolio, our conservative portfolio, we have a three-year time horizon and really a capital preservation goal where we want to eke out a little bit of um, return over and above inflation over that period. So CPI, measuring inflation, plus 1%. We have other portfolios that are longer term in nature, so seven years, 10 years. And these portfolios are aiming to generate 4 to 5% above CPI, again, that measure of inflation. And this range of portfolios can dovetail really nicely with the near and longer term financial goals that, that folks tend to have when they enter the markets. 
What you'll notice here is that the equity range varies. Now, if we look very long-term, you know, 20 years, 30 years, and, and the like, equities tend to be the highest performing asset classes. So if you have longer time horizons, you could have more in equities. If you have nearer term time horizons, um, you tend to have less in equities. You don't need that return and the losses that equities tend to suffer um, can really jeopardize your ability to meet your financial objective um, with those portfolios. And I think it's, it's really important to key off this equity range. Um, we give ourselves a lot of flexibility when we create our asset allocations for these portfolios. Because while certainly equities can be a driver of returns, over more intermediate periods, if fundamentals are a little shaky, if economic conditions take a turn south, if um, valuations are really high, equities can produce really disappointing returns. It wasn't too long ago when we were hearing about the lost decade that ended with the financial crisis, where people who held equities for 10 years actually ended up losing money based on kind of the return sequence over that period of time. And so what we want to do when we invest these portfolios is have the flexibility to adjust our equity allocation and actually our allocation to a lot of the underlying asset classes based on our assessment of their return potential. And I think that's a really critical element of our partnership with advisors. Advisors um, can help clients develop their financial plans, understand what their needs are, put together their kind of... Um, things that they need to achieve to meet those tangible goals. And we at Morningstar can focus on managing the portfolios that meet those investment objectives. And that's a really critical part of what we're doing. It really is the advisor taking care of um, the clients and understanding who the client is and Morningstar focusing on the markets and making sure that we can meet the investment objectives that we set up. Let me talk a little bit about how we do that, just so that you can get a flavor of the kind of analysis that's powering our portfolio. So if we take a look at the next slide, and this is very generalized, um, what we're doing in every prevailing market environment is looking at a range of equity asset classes, a range of fixed income asset classes, and getting a sense for what we think their return pr prospects will be 10 years out from today. So rather than looking historically and saying, well, equities have generally returned this, bonds have generally returned this, package it together and there's your portfolio. Instead, we say, okay, what are earnings today? What are bond yields today? How are valuations across the board? And how do we think that impacts the 10-year return going forward? And we can also ask ourselves, how could this not be true? What are the different scenarios in which the returns could be higher or lower? And what do we think about drawdown or loss for equities or fixed income? How much could these different securities lose? And with that analysis done, and that's something that we're doing on a daily basis as a global investment team, we can then put together portfolios selecting the investments, including some hedges or some offsets that we think will best achieve that particular mandate for that particular portfolio. And I think this is, this is just such a powerful combination because with us focusing on this, this piece of it, adjusting the portfolios um, for the prevailing market environment, clients and advisors can then focus on creating that that financial plan that makes the most sense for them. And so scary headlines or exciting headlines or changing economic conditions doesn't necessarily mean that the client or the advisor needs to revisit that portfolio. That's our job. As long as you know the mandate, that's our job to get you there with our particular portfolio. 
Let's take a look at the next slide to give you a sense for what this can look like in real time. We're looking at our real return flexible strategy, which is our most unconstrained strategy. So with this portfolio, you're really going to see us putting our best ideas to work because there's really no explicit limit on how much equity we could hold or how much fixed income we have to hold. If we really liked the equity markets, in theory, we could have 100% in equities. And if we were terrified, we could potentially have 0% in equities. So this is our most unconstrained portfolio. If you take a look at where we were positioned at the end of December 2019, it looks like we weren't all that keen on equity markets. We have about 41% in equities overall. Again, we could have as much as 100%. And that suggests that equity markets had run very hard. They had performed really well. Companies, especially in the US, were firing on all cylinders and very strong earnings. And we felt that there wasn't much appreciation for the possibility of anything going wrong. And so with the balance of our portfolio, we had a mix of cash alternatives, which tend to be um, a little bit um, lower risk uh, investments, and then fixed income, both here in the U.S. and abroad. Fast forward to March 2020, and the market had materially changed. A significant loss in equity markets here in the U.S. and abroad um, made us think that investors weren't appreciating the actual longer-term return that equities could have. Now, we certainly had no crystal ball that told us that markets were going to rally immediately um, and that there was going to be this quick reversal overall. But we did know that markets were beginning to price in a lot of risk, and we felt potentially too much risk. And so you'll notice that we increased our equity exposure 12% here, up to 52%, taking both from cash and shorter-term investments and from fixed income. And then at the end of June, after the markets had run some, you see our equity exposure begin to tick down as we're responding to the fact that valuations are now a lot higher, and there's potentially more room for disappointment in markets. This is the kind of adjustment that we're doing to our portfolios. And if you take a look at the next slide, you can see how this dovetails with how equity markets, global equity markets performed over 2020. So this is the growth of 10,000. It's looking at $10,000 invested in the global equity market from the very end of 2019 through the end of June. And you can see that for the bulk of the first quarter, markets were just kind of chugging along. And then really at the end of February, beginning of March, you see this tremendous tremendous plunge in value as that $10,000 lost money as equity markets sold off. And then at the end of March, you can see equity markets continue beginning to move higher and higher. So you can see that we had a low equity allocation at the start of the quarter. And then as the equity markets sold off, we began to add equities and we were able to experience some of those gains. That's ideally what we're trying to do with our portfolios to respond to market movements and respond to the prices that we see on securities both with equities and with fixed income. Now, that's a snippet of our real return positioning, um, but we're doing this for a number of different portfolios. If you take a look at the following slide, you get a sense for our broader outcome-based lineup. We have our capital appreciation portfolios, of which real return flexible is one, and then we have a range of income and decumulation portfolios, so portfolios designed to help folks take withdrawals throughout retirement and portfolios in the form of multi-asset income and multi-asset high income that are aiming to generate a certain measure of current income over different time periods. We also have a portfolio aiming to focus predominantly on capital preservation and diversification. We think this range of portfolios really helps folks meet the various financial objectives they might have for their goals. 
Just to wrap things up on the following slide, I think what's most important um, is not to be keying off what's happening in the market, to not be keying off headlines, but to make sure that you know what you need, what you want, and create a financial plan that'll help you get there. I think as long as advisors and clients are focusing on that end of the spectrum and we're focusing on markets, I think we have a partnership that will really help that investor success. Thanks, Marta. And that's our time for today. Thank you for listening and come back next week for a new episode. I'll be talking with Ryan Murphy again, as well as Dan Kemp, about what good forecasting looks like. For Simple But Not Easy, I'm Drew Carter. Bye for now. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of publication. Such opinions are subject to change. No Morningstar entity, including Morningstar Investment Management and Morningstar Research Services, shall be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the content presented. Morningstar makes no representation as of the completeness or accuracy of the information presented. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.